my secret, I didn't realize this until quite recently in a way, is that I do write uh, things which are kind of recognizably in certain grooves and styles pretty much all the time, but I write them out like I'm a classical composer. I'm Ben Caplow, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Christopher Norton. Composer, arranger, and teacher, Christopher Norton is universally regarded as a leader in his field. Born in 1953, he is a New Zealand-born, now Canadian-based composer. His long and fruitful association with Boozy and Hawks has resulted in the world-famous micro-jazz series, the preludes for piano, two concert collections for piano, and, with his wife, Wendy, 30 micro-musicals. In 2005, he wrote Connections for Piano for the RCM. The series is now owned by Christopher and published by his own company, www.80dayspublishing.com. In 2006, he wrote American Popular Piano for Novus via Publications. Christopher is in high demand for his unique and creative presentations, both live and online. He offers sessions ranging from improvisation coaching for private teachers to educating non-competitive piano festivals with literally thousands of student entries, from offering personal intensive masterclass sessions at all levels to lectures and advanced composition. Everywhere he goes, his fresh and uplifting approach to music never fails to inspire and enlighten all who attend. In the last five years, Christopher has written a series of concert works, including a very well-received jazz piano sonata an Italian suite for two pianos, a Turkish Anatolian suite for two pianos, and an Idaho suite for solo piano, which are among the many new publications from 80 Days Publishing. Christopher now lives with his wife, another published composer, in Stratford, Ontario, Canada. I really enjoyed talking with Christopher in detail about many of the aspects of his compositions that, in my opinion, are kind of characteristic of his works. Hope you enjoy! Christopher Norton, thanks so much for joining today. A great pleasure. 
Today, I want to talk about your compositions uh, kind of in depth and talk about some of the characteristic features of your writing. Um, so today, kind of what I want to talk about is catchy melodies, rhythmic energy, writing across different styles, and very precise notation. So first, I want to talk about melody. This is an aspect that I'm always impressed by in your writing. Uh, you said in an interview I saw with Tim Topham, uh, quote, I'm a tune writer deep down, and I know many people who've talked about your work, have talked about kind of the memorability of your melodies, um, which in my opinion kind of often have a folk influence. So can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on what makes a great melody and when you're composing melodies, how much of that is kind of intuitive and improvisatory versus kind of worked out in a more rigorous way? Uh, like most composers, it's kind of a mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. um, I start off, I've always said to students who I'm teaching composition, you, you can start with one note and what follows it suddenly creates a context in which you think, oh, that sounds good. Now let's go to the next step. Uh, so my, my melody writing is intuitive, but um, as we'll be discussing a bit later in this interview, I've, I've written 30 stage musicals as well. And I have to teach like up to 107 year olds, seven songs in one sitting. <laughs> and, and, and so I, you have to write tunes which they can remember. And, and the thing about melody writing, obviously, is it's a combination of repetition and variation and the trick is is to repeat as much as you need to but not not to repeat so much that it becomes boring i once heard somebody say that in jazz and improvisation if there's too much repetition it's boring for the audience if there's too much uh, variation it's alienating for the audience mm -hmm. and i think that, that sort of balancing act is, is what interests me and i'm a great lover of certain melody writers i mean two of my favorites that immediately spring to mind are foray and greek in other words classical composers who write fantastic tunes and rachmaninoff of course and chopin i mean uh well there's loads of them really but and dvorak i mean in other words some of the great melody writers just have melodic gifts and um i pride myself on on, on relying on melody as, as a driver for pieces yeah. i think I like you bringing up Dvorak because I know he did a lot with folk melodies, which kind of yes. I see a lot in your music. Well, that's right. Uh, I've got a little example here to play you, uh, yeah. just a snippet from Connections 5, this mm -hmm. big series which I originate in Canada. It's a piece called Moonscape, and uh, this is what it sounds like. I'll just uh, get it started and mm -hmm. then talk to it briefly. Mm -hmm. And so on. Now, yeah. that's in it's, in, it's pentatonic. Bar. Yes. And in fact, um, I, I was um, learning about improvisation in particular when I was a teenager, well, not really, a bit older than that actually, in my early 20s. And I was in a band for the first time, and there was a wonderful lead guitarist. And I said to him, What's your secret? And he put two fingers in the, up in the air and said, I've got two secrets, pentatonic major and pentatonic minor. Yeah. <laughs> and because guitarists largely seem to use those guys because they lay, lie under the fingers. I think, therefore, a lot of popular music sung or, or played on guitars is pentatonic because of the nature of the instrument, if you like. Um, 
And so when I started trying to write pieces in more popular styles, I, I gravitated towards either pentatonic or mixolydian. I don't really use any, any kind of obscure modes particularly, and then straight major and minor. So, uh, but then of course, as you can hear from that piece, I'm then harmonizing it in, in, in quite um, sophisticated ways. So that that makes quite a difference. And also the harmonic underpinning is very important to me as well. Yeah, I think why the harmonic underpinning is important is because in pentatonic, there's no, of course, minor second, so it's hard to get much in the way of crunchiness. So I like in a lot of your pieces, including the one that you just played, where the melody itself doesn't have much in the way of dissonance, but then you underpin it with these crunchy harmonies, exactly. um, and it creates a nice kind of interplay. Yeah, and in fact, uh, another example is Brighton Bluesy from, from um, a new book called, I think it's called Brighton Bluesy, in fact, the piece is called On the Other Hand. And this is pentatonic minor again, but it's using a lot of crushed notes around it as well. This is a bit different. So you can hear straight away that I'm, I'm, I'm using grace notes and, um, yeah. and elaboration, but it's basically still E minor pentatonic. And my final example of, of, of melody writing, I just chose some at random because I've written thousands of pieces and, and they've all got tunes. But, but these were three which I thought were kind of, uh, don't quite sum things up, but, but give you a, a sort of good overview. And yeah. it's, it's Rumba Number no. 2 from Latin Preludes Collection. Now, what I like about some of these pieces is they're longer pieces and I'm really writing something which is close to a song melody. You can almost imagine putting words to it. Um, can't remember the mode. Okay. In the B section, like a, a chorus. See, I'm coming back to the theme that builds all the way through in a big long paragraph and goes through lots of shifting harmonies and ends up back where the listeners I'm hoping the listeners hoping that that will happen at that point if you like but it's quite it's quite good improvisatory isn't it absolutely I like what you were saying earlier when you said that it kind of has a song like nature and you could imagine words being written over it I mean I actually felt that about all the pieces you play today maybe with the exception of some of the grace notes um, I do often feel kind of a vocal quality in a lot of your melody writing so a question about that do you often sing the melodies out loud when you're writing or do you do it entirely at the piano it's at the piano but I, I, like many composers I don't know where it comes from you know what okay. I mean? in other words I, I'm sitting there and suddenly I, I know what to do next and it's, it's like my subconscious does it and it's from memories from all sorts of, of, of sources. Um, I mean, you can tell, like I'm a great fan of Elaine Elias, or Eliane, I'm not sure how to pronounce her first name, but um, that piece is, is like a very characteristic 
soft Latin style, if you like. <laughs> Uh, so I'm drawing on on melodic fragments from the subconscious as well, like like you do, um, to, to construct these pieces. But what I like is the idea that I then do construct. In other words, I'm starting with, a, with an idea, which I think that's a lovely idea. Now, now, what we can we do to make it sound as natural as possible from beginning to end, uh, either as a long melody or an ABA form or whatever it might be. Yeah. And that goes back to your point you were saying earlier that when you're working with students, you start with a single note often. And so it's, you yeah. can start with this small fragment, but then build it into a soaring, large melody. Another question about this idea of kind of the relationship between singing and piano when you're writing melodies. Um, although obviously you're very well known for writing piano pieces, you also write micro musicals, which you alerted, alluded to earlier. And there are some composers, in my opinion, you mentioned Chopin earlier. I would also put Beethoven in this category who kind of wrote for piano and voice in a very similar style. Um, but then there are some, like, I would say, more contemporary John Mackey, who you listen to their vocal pieces and vocal melodies and their instrumental melodies, and they are quite distinct, and you're almost surprised the same composer wrote both. Uh, what would you say that when you're writing melody, do you kind of have some ideas like repetition you were bringing up earlier that you tend to apply kind of across the board, no matter what the medium, whether it's a solo piano or micro musicals, or do you approach melody writing differently when you're writing for voice as opposed to solo piano? I think I do write, write in the same way. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm trying to find something where it, it starts and the listener can grasp a certain number of notes as, as, and construed as a melody hmm. and, and then there might be a, a next section and then my, my job is to try and figure out how, how to balance those different elements up if you like. When, when you've got uh, words to set of course it, it, it gives a different influence and, and my wife writes quite a lot of words so I, I wrote all the words to the early micro musicals but then I got married um, and, and discovered I was married to a lyricist, uh, a very good one and, and, and she has a different sensibility so uh, what I've said of her words is different. And, and I've, I've got one example here. Mm -hmm. This is from the, the micro musical called In the Shadow of Vesuvius. And she wrote very mysterious words. And, and, and so when I reacted to it, you'll hear even the beginning of it is quite mysterious. And the melody itself, and it's, it's a wonderful chorus as well. Shall I just show a snippet of this? Yes, please. So here we go In the Shadow of Seventeen years before A major earthquake struck the prosperous town It caused great damage to the city's core As many shops and houses tumbled down So that's obviously got melodramatic elements, if you like, yes. and really unusual chords, isn't it? Full of augmented I, chords. Yeah. I like that pause before tumbling down. It's yeah. Text setting. So, so that that you can hear um, is is different from other things I write in a way because because the words are conjuring up images and you suddenly start to go in a slightly kind of more unusual direction. 
I was, I was thinking about this as well. There's um, Theseus and the Minotaur is another one of the micro musicals that's about to come out through Boozy and Hawks. And one of the pieces I did in this, the children really like doing it. It's called The Fight with the Minotaur. Yes, I, 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 that is characteristic of me as well. But of course, I've spent my life. I, I had a good success with micro jazz very early on, and and it, it's one of those funny things you get trapped into doing that. But in fact, I started off writing quite uh, more ab abstract and and atonal music as well when I was when I was pre micro jazz. Um, oh. And in fact, I'm putting some new books out soon, which were written back in the early '70s, which are much more kind of astringent harmonically. Yeah. When you say atonal, do you mean that like like 12 tone or serialism or just... Um, I know it's my, my own take on it. I mean, I, I did some 12 tone things, but I, 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 I couldn't really face the idea of choosing those that weren't the ones I'm going to choose. Right. So, I mean, that was my experience. It in the face of, 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 of who I was. Uh, but my musicals, are, I think, are full of really good tunes as well as interesting, um, you know, colors and, and harmonies and so on. So they're 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 very characteristic of me but in a completely different area but, but they're still driven by having to teach them to young students right so now i'd like to talk about some of what i assume comes up a lot when you work with students on your music which is rhythmic groove um and this is a very characteristic feature of your music you're always very sensitive about kind of where to place accents to convey the feel that you want and i'm sure many of our listeners have had situations where someone comes, a student comes playing one of your pieces, and in theory, the rhythms are correct and that they're held for the right durations, but it feels kind of inert and doesn't really have much of a groove. Uh, what are some of your recommendations on how to work with students who play your pieces like that? Um, one, of the, one of the things I suggest, I, I've done a lot of master classes on my, my music around the world, and I do hear some terrible performances, but <laughs> a lot of very good ones as well. And, and the terrible ones, I can imagine the stu I mean, students don't play my pieces any better than they play classical pieces. In other words, just because it's modern and contemporary in style doesn't mean students uh, play it well, partly because sometimes teachers don't really understand the style they're teaching. I I've been to at least one recital where the whole thing was wrong headed. It's like students stop at the end of every bar slightly, even the duet players, you know, in other words, they weren't keeping up a constant pulse. And one of the things I do do with students is I play along with them. And in the handout I'm giving, uh, you'll notice there's something which I thought might be of interest to people. 
and that is I've done a series of teacher compliments to the connections books just the first three so far because they're the ones that are used the most but what I do when students are playing uh, in master classes or, or whatever or in concerts even I have a second piano and I jam along with them and what I realized is it'd be quite nice to have a part that could actually fit with the student mm. part but also fit with the backing track so that's one way of getting around it is that you, you're providing a little bit of a groove from the teacher part for the student to play with um and, but the other thing of course because i refer the students to the backing track so there are backing tracks for all of my uh, material there's also midi files which come out in the um super score app on the ipad so there, there's various manifestations of the backings and it's amazing how students sometimes play much better when they've got the backing. They, they suddenly click what the piece's style is, if you like. I've got one good example here, which I think is, is quite quite um, uh, characteristic. Can you hear that? Now, yeah. I'm just playing on a piano here. But this is Cops and Robbers from Micro Jazz Collection 3. Now, this is this is a funk, funk style. There's that kind of rhythm, which looks complicated on paper, and really if the student was uh, not aware of what the style was like they might be quite sort of flummoxed by it but when you play it with the backing track and this track i'm going to play has the piano on the backing track so you can hear both parts you, you suddenly realize what Imagine a student not kind of getting the idea a bit from that. Uh, yeah, that's kind of heading to James Brown territory or something yeah. like that. Um, another example, I'm just talking about rhythmic grooves here. That's where, where the backing track is useful is a piece called Merida from the Micro Ballads book. And this is a, a book full of ballads, but this one is a, is a particularly lovely Latin groove. And uh, Again, one thing I do with students, which which is quite fun, is I take that groove, give them the chords, teach them the chords in a very simpler way as I can, but usually in inverted chords, so they're, they're easy to play but sound nice, and then get them to try and make their own melody up mm. to that backing. In other words, go the other way and say, this is what I came up with as a backing for the piece. What tune could you come up with as a tune for the for the backing? So it, it lends itself very well to going both ways, does my material, because you can actually use them for jamming chords and, and simple improvisation. And that particular one I just played, I think that's a minor key piece. It's, it's again, sounds like a minor pentatonic, um, as does the Cops and Robbers. So I'm afraid I, I am I'm revealed as a fairly much a pentatonic composer in this material. But, uh, there, there are, I like grooves best, you might say. I played in, in, in a band for the first time in Britain, and it was it was a nine-piece funk band, and so we we did uh, things like James Brown, and at the time Southside John and the Asbury Dukes, and uh, all, all sorts of seventies funk, and I still really like it. And uh, the the Jazz Crusaders is one of my favorite all-time favorite bands, and I, every time I put certain tracks on, I think I love that groove, if you like. And so I've always aimed to to write pieces which would lend themselves well. To particular groups when you put the other musicians with them. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a calling card because 
teachers, of course, don't necessarily know these grooves. They, they may do, but if they don't, um, it's teaching them what they sound like as well. If they're if they're playing along with the backing track with the student and and hearing that whole backing, because you know yourself, if you're playing with other players, it's a different thing. It brings out things that you didn't know you knew. Mm -hmm. Particularly if you're improvising, if you have a good drummer and a bass player, and they say, "Here's the chord chart, make something up," it's much easier if you've got players with you. And so, so this is this is an opportunity to kind of because it makes uh, that's another point. It makes the students phrase differently. And of course, one of the points um, which I wanted to make, my secret, I didn't realize this until quite recently, in a way, is that I do write uh, things which are kind of recognizably in certain grooves and styles pretty much all the time but I write them out like I'm a classical composer mm -hmm. I didn't realize I was doing this until years later because I started off as a concert pianist I mean I won New Zealand's uh, concerto competition uh, playing of a coffee of concerto when I was 19 so I, I was at that sort of level and um, so when I started writing things down, I didn't know any better I wrote them down exactly as I played them including all the pedaling the phrasing the articulation in glorious detail and of course examination boards have picked pieces up like crazy because teachers can use the material on the page happily thinking i know what to do with this you know right. if it's a three note so you, you, you mr norton obviously means it so a lot of people who send me compositions there's no phrasing on them and i always think well that's, that's a strange starting point because if somebody else is playing you need to let them know exactly how to phrase it Right. So in that case, if there's a teacher who has no background in funk or rock or whatever the style is in question, and they're yeah. kind of insecure about how to teach it, well, you have it all in there and the sheet music. So as long as they follow the sheet music, it will come across as authentic, even if the teacher is not there to prod it along in that way. Yeah. I mean, uh, another thing which I should mention, which is very useful in my repertoire, is, is duets. It's three mm -hmm. um, volumes of Michael Jazz duets, and I'm about to bring out a fourth, believe it or not, after... Being with Boozy and Hawks for nearly 40 years, where mm -hmm. it's got three new books coming out shortly. One of those micro jazz, jazz duets collection four. Um, but the other thing is, I've, I've done two recent books of connections duets, and and these lend themselves very well. This is fascinating to me to actually try and, and work duet parts out of an existing piece, and the the groove aspect is quite strong. And uh, this piece here, for instance, uh, this is streetwise. From connections during book two is, is a good example where you're being given the groove by the the secondo part if you like mm -hmm. and the groove of this particular piece is actually quite like hit the road jack um, um, so because That's mm. a that's a quite a spectacular piece for duet, yeah. and it's kind of in, in Ray Charles vein. It is. In all of these examples you're describing, whether it's the 
backing track or the teacher duet, I think that's a, such a more organic way of teaching groove to a student and rhythmic feel than what I, I did when I first started teaching, where I tried to kind of explain the groove. And I remember in one lesson, I said to the student, it was a rock piece. And I was like, okay, we're accenting the two and the four, and you have to count one, two, three, four. And they don't really feel it when you do it that way. So just presenting them with a track or with these teacher duets that you're talking about is, I think, a great way of getting them to really feel what the groove is, even if they can't exactly explain what it is that they're hearing. It's, again, like more of an organic way of doing it. One uh, sort of element of your music that I also admire, which I think everyone will realize is becoming very apparent in this interview, is you freely go back and forth between so many different styles. I mean, you've written in every style out there, from funk to jazz to rock to apparently, now I just learned in this interview, atonal music. So I know sometimes I'm a composer myself, and when I try to write in styles that are different than my training and background, I come sometimes I'm a little bit apprehensive because I feel like the people who are fully invested in these styles do it better. But your pieces are full of creativity, no matter what the style is. How do you go about making the pieces you write your own when you write across so many different styles and not just resort to cliches? Well, one of the interesting things which which listeners will look at with interest, I think, is the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the concert collections for piano and, and the um, Eastern Preludes and Pacific Preludes, because in these I take existing melodies and, and, and spin pieces out of them of my own. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very interesting. And, and in fact, Eastern Preludes, just to show you an example here, I'm, I'm, uh, this, these are easily accessible on Spotify in particular. Um, Eastern Preludes, I, I took pieces from all over the Asian world and made my own pieces. And I just reacted to the tunes, if you like. Um, so what I like about these is I took one piece, a, a tune and then made it into my own style. In other words, I, I, I'm not sure what you'd call this, but here's the beginning of Ararang, for instance, which is from Korea. So it starts off almost like a, a Chopin piece or something. this new it's my tune and the main tune then comes in it's like I've got two things going on at the same time I like the idea it's almost a chorale prelude approach like where you're writing something which has a life of its own and then put a melody on top of it if you like Hmm. so those books are very uh, interesting in terms of um, that's Eastern Preludes, Pacific Preludes and the concert collections but the other thing which I wanted to allude to was the idea of writing things in almost in specific genres, if you like. And, and I, I do quite a bit of that. And one of them is in a piece called the Idaho Suite, or a book rather, which I wrote for postgraduate students at the University of Idaho. And each of them sent me a video of themselves talking. 
not even playing, just talking, and I wrote character sketches for them. And the first uh, young man to come up was quite straight. He was obviously not a jazz player. And I looked at him talking, and immediately sat at the piano and went, Kind of semi semi Bachian piece. Yeah. So just to clarify, the relationship between this and the student speaking is rhythmic. No, no, just oh. personality. Oh, oh, okay. The sort of person who'd like to play Bach, and sure okay. enough, he was. He didn't really want to play anything pop. Okay. Uh, the second thing, which I've, I've got a little snippet of here, is the finale of the Italian Suite for two pianos, written for two very um, gorgeous Italian girls, uh, sisters, and, and they commissioned this piece. And I read a Tarantella for them not in any particular style, but in a kind of style which was influenced again by their personalities. And this is just the beginning of that. It's just two pianos. Also written a suite for uh, two pianos, which has been commercially recorded, and, and I'm really pleased with, which is half Turkish and half Portuguese in flavour, using folk songs from both those countries uh, as well as my own material. Um, so these are kind of writing almost within genres. And the final thing, which which is going to be new to everybody because it's not out yet, is a Bulgarian suite for piano. And this is written for a Bulgarian pianist, and, and again she sent me a whole lot of folk music from Bulgaria and said, "Can you write me something which sounds?" like it comes from that part of the world somewhere. And this is... Bartok uh, is different than that. So, so I love the fact that I'm getting these commissions and doing things in which I'm roving about into my unconscious or subconscious library of, of influences, which go way back. 
But the, that's very different, isn't it? Yeah, but in all of these examples that you just played, although clearly you're referencing a certain genre, what I really admire is you're still doing your own thing within those genres and you're not just ripping them off. You're integrating your own background in a variety of environments. And another way that you often do that that I want to talk about is the precision of your notation. And this is uh, something you do kind of no matter what the style, and you were alerting to it earlier in this interview. I mean, even in the more pop-sounding pieces, you're very precise about, as you said, the pedaling, the articulation. Um, So I'm very interested um, in, and I've talked about this a lot on this podcast, is kind of the process of how composers select articulations and different ways of teaching articulation to students. Can you talk about your approach to articulation? Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a very common sense thing to say, but one of the big things with articulation for me is changes of position. In other words, if I have, I, I, I have a slur, and if I have to change position, I end the slur and then start the next one. <laughs> uh, so no matter how many notes are in, in the phrase, and, and uh, I'm, I'm I've got a book in front of me here, uh, Collections 10. I'm just doing this at random, if you like. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I can see at a glance, uh, for instance, there's a piece called Fragile Blossom. There's a terrific variety of slur lengths, but a lot of the time, uh, like the first phrase is FCF, uh, thumb, second finger, fifth finger, and then... The next one it starts a phrase on this on the f with your thumb so i've got the next uh, so a lot of the time it is position changing slurring if, if you like hmm. um but also if there's if there's a song like long phrase i, I, I try to try to put a, a long slur marking on it um, i'm very interested also in tenuto marks and accents and so on and um and, and students know that a lot of the time I've got accents in certain places uh, because it gives a particular groove, if you like, if you have an accent marked, um, which is not necessarily in a standard place. Um, yeah. Oftentimes when I look at your works, the articulation to me sort of sounds like a horn player. No, very, very much so, because in fact, I, I worked with a, a very good set of horn players when I was in my first band in Britain, mm. and uh, I got used to horn articulation. In fact, another anecdote uh, talking about improvisation was I was um, really liking the playing of a particular player in New Zealand way back when I was first getting interested in jazz playing. I said to him, where do you get your lines from, you might say? And he said, well, horn players. In other words, you pretty much play the same thing as a saxophone or a trumpet Mm -hmm. player would play. Because I know jazz players can end up phrasing identically to each other, can't they, when you've got a um, swapping of phrases or even unison phrases. So I think the influence of jazz is there, and the idea that, that everybody in a section phrases identically means means that I, I think I try and and do it as though, yeah, as you say, as though a horn player was doing it. So I, the phrasing a lot of time is like a horn player. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, in all these cases, it gives your pieces kind of a level of rigor and thoughtfulness that, frankly, is not often present in pieces that are in a wide variety of styles. So I think it's great for our students to be able to play pieces in contemporary styles, but still play them from composers like you who really know what they want and market so precisely. Before we go, do you have any other advice for our listeners who use your works in their studios? Um, I suppose... Believe, believe the music score, you know, that I, ha- I am writing it down pretty much exactly. So when people say, should I swing this or not? I say, well, on the whole, if I haven't written you, you, you swing it, don't. 
uh, particularly because, of course, they get the backing track and then realize it's right. a hard driving eight straight eights. <laughs> so uh, that's the other thing is, is it, if you don't want to play with backing tracks, at least refer to them for the connection series um, and, and indeed for micro jazz, but connections in particular, the backing tracks are free. And, and you can get them uh, as a, in a bunch for a whole level, and, and you can just refer to them, you know, see because it, it'll give you ideas about the phrasing, I think, as well by by hearing what it's like to play with really good uh, musicians playing on bass drums, guitars, and so on. Thank you. Uh, before we go, can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to now, and how our listeners can continue following you? Yes, um, following me, I've got a website connected to Boozy and Hawks called ChristopherNorton.com. Um, we're also put uh, the, the the big exciting news for me is is that having been with Booz and Hawks since 1983, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, they're they're relaunching my entire catalogue, a very big catalogue. Wow. They're relaunching the whole thing, and 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 among the relaunch items is Micro Jazz Collections Four and Five, which has never existed before. Which again, I've had backing tracks done for those, and I'll give you a sneak preview if I may, because I'm so pleased with these. Um, this is Micro Jazz Collection 4 and 5. So it's a brand new collection, which are harder than the existing Micro Jazz um, collection. So this is the first piece in, in Collection 4. And, and that's rose about wonderfully across the cycle of fifth as well as you can hear. Uh, so they're putting those out, uh, but they're re they're re-releasing everything with new covers. And the reason they're doing it, can you guess? Uh, no, why? <laughs> because all the books originally were released with CDs. Oh, oh, I see. Yes, no one has CD has drives CD anymore. anymore. Yeah. And, so, and so what they're doing now, and if you look at my, uh, if people look at my name on Spotify, there's there's an artist site there. Uh, and it's got everything. I mean, huge numbers of, of things. Um, but but every week, there's more and more things going up on it. Um, but therefore, people will be able to go to Spotify for the tracks, and and the book will be with a new cover and potentially cheaper, I suspect, because there's no CD in it anymore. So so it's a technology thing, partly. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's a big thing. Uh, my own company is called 80 Days Publishing, and we've got um, lots of things we're doing. One of the things which is listed on the handout is Songs from the Micro Musicals, which is 10 volumes of songs graded from grade one to five in British terms uh, of songs, which I'm also, I've done little recordings with like 11 and 12 year olds in Canada. So I sent them to the piano part and they've sent me back the vocal and then I'm putting them together. And it means that we've got actual little performers doing them rather than professional singers like I've used before. Um, and then I've just been working on um, a big hymns project because, of course, the other thing which is really bizarre about my career is I've sold over a million albums in the gospel market. Uh, when I say the gospel market, I mean the Christian market because a lot of those album sales were through of hymns, uh, like, like hymn recordings with choirs. And uh, we've just done a big project of, of unknown lyrics by John Wesley, uh, and, 
and it's I've done that with piano and vocal and backing and a big songbook and also um, choir arrangements. So we're putting out SATV arrangements, same pieces as well. So yeah, the choral uh, aspect is quite interesting. I've done a lot of choral work arrangements and, and which I haven't mentioned today particularly. Um, but again, would you like to hear a snippet of that? Please. I mean, this is, this is fascinating because it's so different. Um, but what I should say, I've done all the arrangements of this, but the actual melodies were written by my wife, who's a composer as well. Mm. Um, but but um, I'm very pleased with this particular project. Here we go. Extended on a cursed tree She's a great singer, he is rather, and uh, my wife is a wonderful tune writer. I mean, she's another person who has a real uh, melodic instinct and mm -hmm. um, she's done uh, 20 new melodies here, which I think people will love. Uh, but it's been great for me because that's another case where I'm taking an existing tune, you might say, and I've, I've done the whole arrangement. So the piano figure in the background and all that is all from me, but her, it's her melody. So I'm taking her melodies like they're folk melodies, if you like, and, and but of course she's not really pentatonic interesting enough so it's a different flavor from my mind um and that's another thing when i'm when i'm doing arrangements of things like the preludes and the concert collections is that i'm not necessarily doing things in this in the kind of same scales that i usually work in so it's making me think differently but as you realized I, I love the idea of being totally creative with it and doing what i like the sound of with it if you mm -hmm. like so I, I act like a composer on it and not like an arranger in that sense Right. Well, these are all very, very exciting updates. I'm particularly excited about the Boozy and Hawks re-releasing um, all of these micro jazz series. So I'll definitely look forward to that for my yeah. own studio. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think I've made it clear in this interview. I love your work. So thanks again for everything you do. And thanks for coming on today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.